0: The reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 to 20 and it's on page 971 of the church bibles. Matthew 7 beginning at verse 13, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it watch out for false prophets they come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ferocious wolves by their fruit you will recognize them do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? likewise every good tree bears good fruit but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, on Sunday mornings, we've been working through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, It might be useful just to pause and recap to remind ourselves of where Jesus has got to. He has been making contrasts between two kinds of righteousness, that which you think you can earn and that which has to be given, between two kinds of devotion, hypocritical and uh, real, between two treasures, one in heaven and another on earth, and between two masters, God and Mammon. Now, as Jesus comes to the end of his sermon, it is decision time for his hearers, whether to continue in the dark or to emerge into the light, to continue with the prevailing culture of his day or to become with him a counterculture. To be in the kingdom of the prince of this world or to join the kingdom of God through Jesus. So the rest of chapter 7 has Jesus, um, as he continues to press the contrasts further, what he does is uh, we see between two ways, the broad and the narrow, between two teachers, false ones and true ones, between two professions. Mere words, or words which uh, are evidenced by outcomes. And between two foundations, the sand and the rock. Next week we'll focus on the last two, the professions and the foundations. But this week we'll uh, look at which way to go and who to follow along that way as we look at the alternative ways in 13 and 14, and the alternative instructors in 15 to 20. So how are you at making decisions? Are you a procrastinator or are you decisive? It may be that you have a professional decision to make. You're offered a new job, but it means uprooting the family. It might be political. Did you have trouble working out how to vote in the Brexit referendum, for example? Or if you were American, you know, if you were an American, how would you go about if you had to vote in their presidential elections? It might be a moral decision. You might be having a coffee with a friend, and the discussion takes a heavy turn as you find yourself talking about possible terminations or possible divorce. Some of us are clear thinking and work out an answer by going back to basic principles and thinking things through until we reach a settled decision. Most of us, I suspect, will get overwhelmed, swamped by a tidal wave of information. We feel adrift, we feel rudderless, bobbing around and going nowhere. It can happen also when we're having to consider the most important questions of life, such as why are we here, where are we going, how are we to live? And faced with the person of Jesus, we freeze. Do we dip our toe in and evaluate him? Is he credible or is he not? Or do we back off because we have a hunch that he might demand too much? So we press pause, we anesthetize ourselves to the issue. Better to blank him out than this risk being confronted by the truth and having to come face to face with change. Well, Jesus was well aware that this was a likely tactic to be employed by those who heard him. So he spells out the alternatives very clearly. To make the choice very stark. So which way to go? Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Jesus doesn't mean for us to live in the fog. He has come to earth to reveal himself so that we can see him clearly, as clear as the sky on an autumnal day after the fog has lifted. But in his sermon, he also exposes us because at times we like hiding in the fog because we don't have to come out. Nobody can see who is with us. Well, he's here to blow away the fog so we can emerge, take sides, express alignments. For him, you see, there is only one choice from two possibilities. So first, there are the two ways. The Old Testament has lined us up well for this because in Psalm 1, for example we read that the way of the righteous who delight in God's law bears fruit and they prosper. And in contrast, the way of the wicked is like the chaff that is just blown away to perish. Jesus elaborates on this picture. One way is easy and the other way is hard. Now, the word broad means spacious or roomy and some manuscripts combine those images and and call this way wide and easy. John Stott, in his very helpful commentary on the sermon, says this. There is plenty of room on the wide way for diversity of opinions and laxity of morals. It is the road of tolerance and permissiveness. It has no curbs, no boundaries of either thought or conduct. Travellers on this road follow their own inclinations. That is, the desires of the human heart and its fallenness. Superficiality, self-love, hypocrisy, mechanical religion, false ambition, censoriousness. These things do not have to be learnt or cultivated. Effort is needed to resist them. No effort is required to practice them. That is why the broad road is easy. The hard way, on the other hand, is narrow. Its boundaries are clearly marked. Its narrowness is due to something called divine revelation, which restricts pilgrims to the confines of what God has revealed in Scripture to be true and good. In his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis described how, as a schoolboy of 13, he began, as he says, to broaden his mind. I was soon altering, I believe, to one does feel, and oh, the relief of it. From the tyrannous noon of revelation, I passed into the cool evening twilight of higher thought, where there was nothing to be obeyed and nothing to believe except what was either comforting or exciting. Well, Lewis flags up, what we at first all suspect, that surrendering our autonomy will cramp our style. It will be like living in a prison. In fact, though, the reverse is the case. Following our Master's instructions, living the way in which we were designed and made, is the best fit for life. It's what we were made for a lot more straightforward than our own way. Secondly, there are two gates. The gate leading to the easy way is wide. It's easy to find. There's evidently no weight limit. You can take as much baggage as you like. You don't have to leave anything behind, not your sins, not your self-righteousness, not your pride. The gate leading to the hard way, on the other hand, is narrow. It's not easy to find. It can be easily missed. If the first gate was like the wide approaches to Wembley Stadium or the O2 Arena, the second gate is more like the turnstiles or the ticket barriers, where there's a limit to what you can take through and you go through one at a time by conscious choice. Sin, selfish ambition, covetousness, And even if necessary, family and friends have to take their place. I'm sure we know of Christian friends, and certainly, if you've been here a while, a couple of former curates who have faced family disapproval for following Jesus, who said, I am the gate, whoever enters through me will be saved. And thirdly, there are two destinations. Psalm 1 foreshadowed this, where prospering and perishing were the alternatives. Moses makes it clearer still. He says, See, I have set before you this day life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. And similarly, Jesus taught that the easy way entered by the wide gate leads to destruction, which is terrible because God by nature is a creator, not a destroyer, and we were made to live, not to die. By contrast, the hard way entered by the narrow gate leads to eternal life, which Jesus explained meant a peace with God as our Father which can begin now, but which is perfected in the next life, in which we will see and share his glory and find perfect fulfilment, the culmination of what he made us for. And fourthly, there are two crowds, one entering by the wide gate, travelling along the easy road to destruction, and there are many who go along that way. The broad way is an easy road, and it's a busy road. The narrow and hard way which leads to life, however, seems to be comparatively deserted. Those who find it, Jesus says, are few. Jesus seems to have anticipated his followers would be few, or rather perhaps appear to be few. Or they may, as his followers, even feel themselves to be few. We are, after all, easily airbrushed out of public life. We're often thought of as being the margins of the modern world. And yet, the church in the United Kingdom has more regular members than Watch programs like Newsnight and Channel 4 News or Listen to Woman's Hour or Belong to the Political Parties, all added together. As we're reminded of the Church Triumphant, the people of God in Heaven, it will contain a multitude from every nation of the world, from every period of history, a multitude that no one can count. So if you are tempted to feel marginalised and alone as a Christian, think of the big picture. Think of the reality that you're not alone. We have a future. We're heading for heaven. So, which route are you on? Where are you heading? According to Jesus, there are only two ways, the hard and the easy. There are only two gates, the broad and the narrow, travelled by two crowds, the large and the small, ending in two destinations, destruction or life. It may feel uncomfortable to have to put it so plainly as Jesus does. We would often much prefer just to kind of muddle along in our little haze along the via media, the muddled, incoherent middle way. But he puts before us two ways. And he means us to choose. So we move now on from which way to go to who along the way are we going to follow. Once you get started on the highway to heaven, there are others, false teachers, he warns us, who will try to tempt us off track, either to the right or to the left. It doesn't matter which way you turn whether the, when you succumb to such alluring temptation. All those other roads lead to destruction. Only one road leads to heaven. Again, to quote the words of Jesus elsewhere, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, by saying "Watch out for false prophets," Jesus assumes that they will come after him, just as they'd gone before him, and just as in his day he had the, scri- the, the the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. One of our members works for a well-known local company and spends much of his life as a chemist identifying counterfeits to his company's very valuable products. Well, there are plenty of counterfeits who have arisen in the history of the Christian Church. And sadly, there are many throughout the world around today. It is, Jesus says, a reality. So he warns his disciples of their existence. There were plenty of false prophets, after all, in the Old Testament times. And Jesus seems to think of the Pharisees and the Sadducees in their different ways as examples of such in New Testament times. And he seems to think that their number will increase as time goes on and as we get closer to the time, whenever it is, that he returns. They're mentioned in just about every book of the New Testament. They are called either pseudo-prophets, as they are here, presumably because they claim divine inspiration, or pseudo-apostles because they claimed apostolic authority, or pseudo teachers, or even pseudo christs, because they made messianic pretensions or deemed Jesus not to have come, for example, in fully human form. Each was pseudo, and pseudos in Greek is the word for a lie. In the history of the Christian church, false teachers have forced true believers to actually think out and define the truth more precisely, as well as more accurately. And that's how we acquired the creeds, for example, which were formulated by the early church at places like Nicaea and Chalcedon. And then the reformers in the 16th century. And today, we face slightly different challenges to those different periods in history. And so we, whether it's the Evangelical Alliance, the University Colleges and Christian Fellowships, or within the Anglican Communion, the Jerusalem Declaration or the Reform Covenant, we have been forced to think out what we believe on the presenting false teaching of our era. And such creeds and confessions and statements have been necessary and helpful in warding off false teaching which can be incredibly damaging. False teachers are not only dangerous, they are deceptive. Watch out for false prophets, he says. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. A pack of wolves can stalk, pursue, tire, and then tear apart prey which is far bigger and stronger than themselves. Something that's not immediately apparent, as in the metaphor Jesus uses, is the way they present themselves, though, as harmless, woolly sheep. You won't find wolves and bears and lions in the Holy Land today, but they were there in Jesus' day. Wolves were the natural enemy of sheep who were defenseless against them unless their shepherd protected them. So the good shepherd protects the flock by feeding it with truth. The false teachers, like the wolves, divide it by error. I know, said the Apostle Paul, as he was leaving the Ephesian elders for the last time, he said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock, And from among our own selves will arise men speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. As many of you know, I was for um, ten years um, a member of the General Synod of the Church of England. There were some pluses to that. I met some really good new friends. And I had the opportunity to reconnect with about 20 guys that I'd in fact been at university with. And we at the time were in the Christian Union. And in those days the Christian Union was by far the largest society in the university. It had well over a thousand members. It could attract turnouts of 1,200 people a night for eight days in a row. With a 160 or so professing faith during that week, it was a very orthodox society. And while it was great to meet some who have hardly changed since then, either in looks or in fact, um, in their theological convictions, there were, sadly others who were not now where they once were. some even now really were denying the core tenets of the Christian faith and were, whether knowingly or unknowingly, undermining it. So what are these perverse things which Paul says are are out to disturb and to endanger the church? Well, one of the major characteristics of false prophets in the Old Testament was their amoral optimism, Their denial that God was the God of judgment as well as the God of steadfast love and mercy. They were guilty, as Jeremiah said, to the people of filling you with vain hopes. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no evil shall befall you. Similarly, God complains, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. A pretty failed patch-up job, which just gave the people a false sense of security. It lulled them to sleep in their sins. It failed to warn them of the impending judgment of God or tell them how to escape it. The northern kingdom, centered on Samaria, was the first to discover that God means what He says when His judgment fell upon them at the hands of the Assyrians in yeah. 722. And then, over a hundred years later, the whole thing was repeated again in the days of, uh, well, first, uh, yeah, the days of the Babylonians when they defeated the kingdom of Judah. And smashed Jerusalem to the ground. Now, it's not surely, it's surely not an accident, therefore, that Jesus' warning about false prophets in the Sermon on the Mount immediately follows his teaching about the two gates, the two ways, the two crowds, the two destinations. For false prophets are adept at blurring the issue of salvation. Some so muddle or distort the gospel that they make it hard for seekers to find the narrow gate. Others try and make out that the narrow way is in reality much broader than Jesus implied and that to walk it requires little, if any, restriction on one's belief or behaviour. And yet others, perhaps the most pernicious of all, dare to contradict Jesus and to assert that the broad road does not lead to destruction, And that, as a matter of fact, all roads lead to God. And that even the broad and the narrow roads, although they lead off in opposite directions, ultimately both end in life. No wonder Jesus describes such as ferocious, meaning extremely dangerous. They are responsible for leading some people to the very destruction which they say does not exist. So beware, Jesus warns, we must be on our guard, pray for discernment, use our critical faculties, never relax our vigilance. We must not be dazzled by a person's outward appearance, their charm, their following, their PR packaging, their social media presence, their doctorates or ecclesiastical honours. We must not be naive. We must look beneath the appearance to the reality what lies under the fleece a sheep or a wolf they're not only dangerous they can be deceptive dogs and pigs that were mentioned earlier in uh, chapter seven were very easy to spot because they had dirty habits but not wolves where they sneak into the flock disguise the sheep they look the same they use the same language they can appear very nice. They can be very spiritual and seem very pious. They can even latch onto something that's of particular concern to you, some emphasis in the Christian faith, just to gain your unsuspecting welcome. Their true character is not discovered until it's too late, when the damage is done. So, how do we spot them? How, do, how can they be detected? Well, to answer our concern, Jesus is changes from uh, the metaphor from uh, sheep and wolves to trees and their fruit. Although we may sometimes mistake a wolf for a sheep, Jesus seems to say that we can't make the same mistake with a tree. A tree can hide its identity. For a long time, but sooner or later, it betrays itself. It has to bear fruit. A wolf may disguise himself, but a tree can't. Noxious weeds like thorns and thistles cannot produce edible fruit like grapes and figs. Not only is the character of the fruit determined by the tree, a fig tree bearing figs and a vine bearing grapes, but it also reveals its condition too. Jesus says... Do you get grapes from thorn bushes? Do you get figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. And what fate awaits a bad tree? Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. A reference there to the Day of Judgment, when the one with both the authority and the competence to judge, will differentiate and dispatch. Twice Jesus has said, in 16 and 20, by their fruits you will recognize them. But what are these fruits? Is Jesus, uh, um, in Jesus's allegory of the vine in John's Gospel, fruitfulness is evidently Christ-likeness, what Paul later termed the fruits of the Spirit. If that's the case, then a true teacher ought to reflect the meekness and gentleness of Christ, his love, patience, kindness, goodness and self-control. If he does, he's more likely to be true than false. On the other hand, whenever these qualities are missing, the works of the flesh are more apparent than the fruits of the Spirit. And there is pride, arrogance, self-inflated egos, enmity, impurity, hypocrisy, claiming credit for oneself rather than giving the glory to God. In addition to character and conduct, there is what they teach. The Apostle John is particularly hot on this in his letters to the Christian Church at the end of the first century in Western Turkey. He was very concerned with what teachers teach. Was it what Jesus and the original apostles like himself taught? Was it, in other words, apostolic teaching? In his issue, in his day, the issue was the full humanity and the full divinity of Jesus. And he wants to know whether they hold to what I have heard helpfully referred to as the biblical line to the teaching of the apostles. In their character in their conduct and in their teaching the biblical line is like imagine it like this it is the norm it is the teaching of the bible and we sit under it we use our god-given rationality to understand it and what we discover we have to obey if we claim to follow Jesus. After all, Jesus endorsed the authority of the Old Testament and he made provision for the New Testament by teaching his apostles who wrote it down and presented it to us. That is the biblical line. And there are those who deviate above it and there are those who deviate below it. Above it are what one might term the super-spiritual. They add to the Bible. Particularly, they add... What is um, from the not yet, they add it to the now. It's called over-realized eschatology, if you really want to know. But what they basically are doing is they expect some things that won't be the case until we're in heaven. They say they are available now. And then there are the reductionists, those below the line. They subtract in their theological arithmetic they think that scripture has got it wrong. Put very bluntly, they think Jesus has got it wrong. So either they have to say, he knew that what he said was wrong, but he was just accommodating to the ways of his day to make life a bit easier to get across the rest of his message. Or he didn't know that what he said was wrong because he was merely human. Well, the first option seriously undermines his integrity. He's not being honest, whereas the other one undermines his divinity. Neither is the Jesus portrayed in the New Testament. I think the best way to illustrate these deviations from what one might call the biblical norm is to give two examples. They're real, but they are composite Sometimes people listen to these tapes and um, they might identify themselves. Well, the first one's all right, because it could have been my autobiography. Think of a keen student going to university, a Christian, and going to study theology. Every lecture, every book attempts to pick holes in the veracity of scripture. So inevitably, his belief in its authority and truthfulness is undermined. There's no one around to direct him to other scholars who uphold the truthfulness of scripture, quite rigorously and intellectually. And even if there were, there's little time to read, to do the extra reading, to be able to counter the line that one's being heavily pushed. A very good deconstruction job is done. And the authority of scripture is put in doubt. The student is put in the fog and has a very wobbly, uncertain foundation. Prone to doubt, is very likely to wander off. Next, what you might call the super-spirituals at work. Thinking too much of the future into the present is the norm. And it works like this. Verses are taken out of context. So, by his stripes we are healed, Isaiah 53. That is applied to both salvation, the forgiveness of sins, as well as to health and healing. Add in a couple more verses out of context, where, for example, um, it's suggested that so long as we've got enough faith, whatever that would look like, or whether we have actually confessed every hidden sin. And if we do both those things, then we will gain health. And we will gain, in some countries, also wealth. It sounds especially to desperate people deeply attractive. But it doesn't work. And it doesn't work because it's misusing the Bible. Isaiah 53 has to be understood through the New Testament where it is not taken literally, it is taken as a metaphor for salvation. Healing is a metaphor for salvation. Returning us to what God intended us to be like. But this side of heaven, neither health nor salvation, is fully experienced. To bracket healing and salvation and claim that Jesus does both now is misleading. Yes, he will fully do both. But this side of the grave, salvation, justification by faith, is automatic upon repentance and faith. We have Jesus' words that tell us that. But glorification awaits heaven. Health is not automatic upon repentance and faith. There's no verses which give you that as an indication. We all, after all, have to die in this life. One family I know spent their ministry backing all this kind of teaching that came across from the States in its various different forms and different ways. Sometimes in their church, when somebody got cancer, somebody else would have the idea that this sickness was not unto death, and everybody got excited, and the person died. Well, leaving aside the pretty confusing effects that it will have on the person themselves and their closest family. What were the outcomes of the children growing up in that church? Sadly, none of the children in my friend's family embraced the faith as adults. You see, they had been presented with a false faith. And it didn't work And that was the one that they evaluated and, not surprisingly, they ditched it. Enormous damage can be done by not understanding the Bible correctly. Of course, though, we pray for God's healing when someone gets cancer, particularly if they have not reached their three score years and ten. And we have many examples of how God has answered our prayer within our own community here at St. Mary's. But they are not miracles in the Old Testament or New Testament sense, where there is no ambiguity whatsoever, where unbelievers would have to acknowledge that a miracle had taken place. There was no other alternative. Miracles in Scripture don't pop up everywhere. They only occur around certain people, like Moses, Elijah, Jesus, and the apostles. And the Bible tells us why, because it is God's way of validating his messenger with his message, which is for all people of all time. Today, we have, through uh, some members, who have been preserved, through natural, medical, and supernatural means for the time being. Their body's natural restorative resources have been in operation. They have received the finest treatment from doctors, and they have received the grace of God in operation in response to our prayers, for which we thank God. Well, Jesus leaves us with two options, each with a choice to be made. Which way to go? The wide gate leading to the broad way that leads many to destruction, or the narrow gate leading to the narrow way that leads the few to eternal life? And who to follow? The false teachers? Wolves who look like sheep, but who are deceiving, damaging and destructive. Bad trees that produce bad character, bad conduct and bad teaching with bad outcomes. Or true teachers with Christ-like character and conduct and true teaching which bears good fruit. Let us pray. The third collect for Advent sums things up. Lord Jesus Christ, who at your first coming sent your messenger John the Baptist to prepare the way for you, grant that the ministers and stewards of your truth may so make ready your way by the turning of the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, that at your second coming to judge the world, we may be found an acceptable people in your sight. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.